Hello and welcome to From the Trenches, a business examiner news group podcast. My name is John McDonald. This episode's special guest is the Vice President, National Operations for the Edgewood Health Network, or EHN Canada, a network of recovery centers from coast to coast, including a location in Nanaimo, British Columbia. She covers warning signs that business leaders should be aware of both in themselves and in their staff, how they can work to develop a culture of self-disclosure, and much more. Our conversation starts now. My name is Dr. Christina Basdo. I am the Vice President of National Operations for uh, EHN Canada, Edgewood Health Network Canada. And I have been working with EHN on and off for 13 years now. Um, what the job entails, you wanted to know too? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think the, what the job entails and, I, and also what led you to, to EHN. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, at the you know risk of personal disclosure, I have a tremendous amount of addiction sort of in and around my family. And so um, going into the field, like in studying um, addiction studies and psychology became really like, important to me, I think, when I was a lot younger. So that's how I chose the field of addictions. And then as I sort of grew and became um, a clinician, because I'm a clinician by training and then moved more into management after that, I just developed a real passion for helping people and seeing people actually get well and, and move through addiction. Like it doesn't need to be a death sentence or a limitation for people. So I think that was a really big piece for me. And then as I grew passionate there, then I got really passionate about the processes um, and the operations of different facilities. So I was able to grow in management capacity. And um, I was executive director of Edgewood here in Nanaimo for a period of time. Uh, and then most recently moved into a VP of Western Canada, which was overseeing the four sites we have in Western Canada with a fifth on the way. And then last Monday, I moved into national VP, which is overseeing all of the sites across Canada. So really helping all of the different executive directors run their specific treatment centers and be a part of helping a lot of the clients that we serve. Awesome. Well, congratulations on the promotion. It looks like we timed this interview perfectly. Yeah, you did. Uh, completely <laughs> unintentionally, I might add. Yeah. Um, well, that's awesome. I appreciate that very much. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Uh, the addiction stuff is a, a passion of mine uh, as well. And uh, for similar reasons, I would guess. And so, yeah, I've been looking forward to this. And I wanted to jump in to some of these questions to kind of educate the audience. There are a lot of business owners uh, or lead people in positions of leadership. And so I wanted to jump off and just ask you about some misconceptions uh, about addiction and recovery uh, and how can business leaders help their staff who are struggling? Yeah, great. I mean, I think... I think now we're seeing, you know, the the addiction vision that makes the news is not a pretty one. Um, I think that what, what we see a lot is that, I mean, especially in British Columbia, we see sort of the downtown east side. In our communities, the, the vision of addiction focuses on what can be very publicly seen. And typically the response to that is quite dehumanizing and quite reactive and, and sometimes often anger provoking, right? You have the taxpayer argument, you have the enabling argument, you have a lot of things that spiral around really the depths of addiction. And, and I'm not saying that that's not really important to look at and really important to provide services and help um, to all people struggling. But 
but that's not the only place that addiction's happening. And I think we we miss a huge component where addiction is actually affecting like 20% of Canadians actively with a fairly serious way. And, and many of those people are working, they are in active jobs, they are, you know, they have families, they have employment, they have, you know, kids and activities, there are general community members. And many of us have addiction in the family that, that we don't necessarily acknowledge. And I think for employers, and even for myself and my employment, it's easy to focus on sort of the stigmatized version of what really severe addiction looks like, but addiction can also manifest itself in the workplace amongst employees or amongst individuals struggling. It may look different, but it doesn't mean that it's not as severe or impacting the life of that employee as significantly. They may just have more access to resources that have allowed them to continue on in their process or may have a different substance of choice that has it look different. And so I think it's often stigmatized in the workplace and pushed aside and ignored, which really further compounds some of the shame that can happen, you know, for people that are struggling less openly or obviously uh, to those around them. And I'm wondering for these business leaders, is there anything that they can do? I wonder proactively about developing Oh, like the question here is about a culture of support, but is that as simple as like a lunch and learn, you know, once a quarter or what else can they do? So something I like to say is like this developing of a culture um, around uh, self-disclosure, right? Now that's a, that's a tough one, right? Because I think some employers are going like, I mean, pardon the language, but holy shit, like, do we really want a culture of self-disclosure? Do we want those quotation problems coming forward? Isn't it better to just, you know, hope they go off on medical leave and wonder what's going to happen, right? Like there's a real, there's still a stigma in a workplace around what's the impact of addiction. And so when we look at increasing awareness is obviously the first step and decreasing um, stigma. When I look at, and I'm only looking over here because I made some notes, but really like when we look at people like mental illness and addiction, it's going to be present in every in every work in every workplace, right? To a certain extent, right? We know that people across Canada are starting with depression, anxiety, even in low levels, and we don't want those people to feel bullied, isolated, or, or out of place. I mean, that's the first, I think, big one. And really, when you think about, well, there's quite a few statistics in HR research that really only 36% of employees are willing to even talk about their own mental health concerns with their employer. And really, I mean, let's say it's one in three, that's not very high, right? Um, and so two thirds of individuals that are struggling are likely not to bring it forward. So when we talk about like a workplace, we wanna like bring addiction or mental health issues out of sort of the shadows and, and a lunch and learn is a good point. So yes, addiction awareness is the first step. Talk about things like highly stressful moments that may cause issues for employees, employees in crisis, does the employer have the support it needs, you know, from a return to work perspective, HR perspective? Do they know what they could ask of employees, um, including um, drug monitoring, et cetera? Like, do employees get the care they need or do they have EFAP services? All of these pieces like lend itself to mental health support, I think, in the workplace. Um, and for a lot of people, there's limitations around those things, of course, from a cost perspective. But what does the containment look like around your policy? And even policies like many workplaces don't have substance use policies. They probably should, right? Like, what does that mean? Are we allowed to use substances in the workplace? Can we show up intoxicated? What would it look like if we did have an issue, right? There's a lot of that doesn't come into policy until there's a problem. And then I think a lot of employers feel um, very overwhelmed. And why wouldn't you? Because it's a huge, it can be a huge crisis point and if handled improperly can also cause issues in the workplace. 
So the other thing that's really powerful is um, peer support in the workplace. So if you have anyone who self-identifies as being in recovery or self-identifies as having family members who have struggled who may be in recovery, like any peer champions are a big push for a workplace because they can also connect, you know, people to self-help programs, et cetera. So that's something that we try and, and push forward to. And any contingency planning around what happens if there's if there's substance use in the workplace too. Is there anything uh, warning sign related? I know that's can be quite a broad topic, especially depending on what kind of addiction they're dealing with. But is there any maybe like a top two or three like, oh, we got to deal with this kind of a thing that a, a leader can look at their staff and pick something out? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think warning signs, decreased job performance, um, you know, low productivity, not meeting deadlines, frequent breaks, increased absenteeism is a big one that we would see. Uncharacteristic behaviors like mood swings or irritability, you're not maybe coping as well as beforehand. Some breakdown in social skills, maybe you're noticing someone decompensate socially more than you would have noticed before. Um, changes in personal hygiene is a big one. And I will say the shift to online work has made it more difficult for employers to help employees who are struggling because you won't notice things like personal hygiene slipping as quickly. You won't notice sort of the smell, for example, of alcohol. Like there's physical signs that you won't be able to really pick up on. So that's been an interesting shift with COVID. Um, and then things like errors in judgment, right? Um, accidents or mistakes in work, et cetera. And I think it's important when those things show up, it's not about assuming that there's a substance use disorder, right? Like we never want to make that assumption because oftentimes there may also be um, issues at home or a mental health condition that's flaring up um, that can mimic those. But it's about then taking the step to actually be curious and support an employee, preferably with a policy in place to, to, to protect the employer um, as well. Uh, but those would be some of the warning signs I think that would be most common. If there is a warning sign that is present, what is an appropriate response? Oh, yeah. Loaded question. I mean, I'm going to assume we're talking about a non-unionized work environment because um, that's a different ballgame altogether, right? Uh, but I mean, the first thing, again, like an employer covers themselves with the most protection for both the employee and the plumber if you have a policy in place, right? Like, is there a policy that says, you know, when these things are coming up, we're, we're able to talk to you, whether it's with HR present or a trusted peer, if that individual would like to bring someone in for a difficult conversation, like it, it is really about saying, hey, we're concerned about you. These are the things we've noticed. Is there anything that you want to talk about or anything going on for you? If you're just dealing with sort of warning signs that don't include catching someone using a substance, having them smell of alcohol, et cetera, then you're really just exploring the behaviors and saying, hey, do you know that we have these supports in place? Like we have an EFAP program that deals with mental health challenges, substance use issues, crisis planning, right? Like um, if you notice alcohol in someone's breath, it's a different story, right? Because if you have a policy in place that you can't show up for work intoxicated, then the question is going to be, do they need to go home? What does support look like? Obviously, safety-sensitive professions vary from non-safety-sensitive professions. Does this person need to go for an assessment or an independent medical evaluation? Or do they need to be on, um, you know, compliance or re return to work monitoring? Like those, those pieces. But the conversation really is one that's kind and supportive, right? And, and I think approaching it particularly from that lens can be really helpful. And if you have, of course, a peer support program in your or a peer support group, or any peer that's mentoring or says they're in recovery, they can also be really helpful advocates in that way. Uh, and I think even like something as simple as signage in the workplace, um, like even in a staff room, right? If you're struggling with substances, call this. If you're struggling with mental health concerns, call that. Like 
it starts to change, I think, the the landscape. It, it makes it something that people are even maybe talking about a little more than than not. Tremendous uh, actionable intel there, which I very much appreciate. Want to hop into a little bit about, uh, I would just call it research findings uh, around addiction and recovery. Where, like you said, there's kind of like the the demonization of, you know, the downtown east side is very prevalent uh, in Vancouver. But is there, that's kind of what we see, you know, the 600 deaths in Q1 of of this year. But what else are you seeing? Yeah, I mean, I think for for this, especially for the the group we're talking to today, really, like we're wanting to know how does it show up in our workplace, in our in our you know environments. And I think some of the things that I find most interesting, and I said I think earlier, twenty percent. So one in five Canadians experience like a mental health or addiction problem every year, right? And if you there, there's now these again, I will say these data are as accurate as sort of census Canada, statistics Canada and HR research can be. So they're not from an empirical article, but they are used to draw conclusions around, you know, long-term disability claims, other claims, et cetera. Um, so they, there is a look that over 50, that up to 50% um, of sick days used in Canada are due to mental health. When we look at disability claims, 30% of disability claims are related to mental health which account, interestingly enough, for 70% of disability costs because the claims are usually longer and um, and also just take more uh, to treat, like it's a longer-term treatment process. Um, I mean, if we want to get more depressed, economic burden of mental illness, uh, $51 billion per year in Canada is the approximate economic cost. And when we look at the economic burden of mental illness and also the, the cost to lost productivity is 24 billion due to substance use problems. So there's two different pieces. There's the treatment, but there's also either absenteeism or we're working, let's say only at 50% capacity or whatever it may be. When we look at uh, the 20% number, like it also, when we look at Canadians developing over time, they also say that one in five or 21% of the population will meet the criteria for addiction, maybe a moderate, criteria, right? Or, but they will meet it within their lifetime. Yeah. And then I think really just looking at the impact on families is something that we often forget. But when we look at spouses or, or children um, in the home, like we're going to see, we may also have that present in the workplace, right? Spouses or, well, I mean, maybe less kids, but spouses that have maybe higher rates of anxiety or depression because they're in a home where addiction is present. And the coupling of the two is a, is a big one too that we that we don't always look at, right? So it's, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, it's going to be in every organization to some extent. It can't not be unless you hire like one person, right? Like if you just statistically, right? Like it's going to show up at some point. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's phenomenal. And I think just to me, when I hear that information, it means you just kind of always have to be on and you have to be ever always yeah, aware. Yeah, yeah. Okay, awesome. So following up on that a little bit of just wanting to look at how your, I would say maybe profession is the right word, sector might be a little too corporate, but the understanding of addiction and recovery and how you attack it. Um, can you kind of elaborate on just maybe how that's evolved? Again, big, broad question, but maybe over, let's say, in the last like five or so years, if there's been any yeah. kind of major changes? I think if I look, like I've been in the field for a while and I think it, it it started very much in like the Minnesota model. Many people will be aware of things like the 12 step um, recovery model and, and still incredibly useful and incredibly um, like there's a lot of research that talks about peer support being an incredibly important component for people to be able to um, find recovery, find mentorship, find support, destigmatize their experience, et cetera. So that's a vital component, but for treatment, I think the biggest shift 
there's probably be three that I would say I've noticed in the last five, five to 10 years probably is there's been a lot more research done in the fields of addictions and, and concurrent mental health. And so the coupling of the two have led to there needing to be a more advanced skill set when it comes to sort of targeting the psychology of the, of the issue, right? So we're seeing you know, the desire to have um, either psychologists or psychiatrists when possible um, really be able to be part of that treatment lens when we're seeing that the mental health concern may actually be a reason or a factor why the addiction is present. Like that's something that really is important to, to try and figure out treatment because it's when someone comes in presenting, let's say, with a substance use disorder, once the substance is removed from consumption and they're in a period of, of sobriety, whatever that may look like for them, uh, we may actually see very significant anxiety that presents itself. Well, if we don't properly treat or medicate the anxiety or the depression that, that exists, we're, we're more likely to see a return to um, addiction or a return to using substances. So I think more compassion around people having chosen their substance of choice to actually treat a mental health concern or condition. I think we're seeing a lot more people and a lot more practitioners being more compassionate around trying to suss out, wait a minute, maybe this person was actually trying to do the best they could and treat their anxiety with cannabis, for example. And unfortunately it's gotten out of control and here we are. Uh, but I think a little bit more of that versus the whole addiction is the only thing we're looking at. So that's something I think is a great shift and, and a good shift. Obviously the shift to digging a little bit deeper into um, the impact of, of trauma, um, of traumatic instance, really looking at things like post-traumatic stress, not only looking at being diagnosed with PTSD, but actually taking a look at what factors have increased your risk of post-traumatic stress. Because some people are, um, may, they may not have had an instant that would classify them as having a PTSD event or post-traumatic disorder diagnosis, but they have actually been impacted by, for example, years of adverse childhood experiences or years of post-traumatic stress or stress factors that can cause a similar, you know, hypervigilance in the nervous system, a similar intensity of emotion. And, and again, they, they may be using substances to help cope with a lot of what hasn't been dealt with underneath the surface. And so I think seeing the counseling and seeing the clinical work, delving a little deeper into the underlying pain, so to speak, um, and having more compassion to look into that has also been a nice, a nice shift. And then I mean, something that I think is great, again, but it's more therapeutic nature is there's been also a shift to um, that somatic, uh, focusing on the somatic experiencing that people have. So we store a lot of tension in our bodies, we store a lot of stress in our bodies. And I think connecting um, the individual into their bodies more to and, and some of that came with mindfulness, and then somatic therapy took on its own a whole new route. But actually allowing people to connect sort of the head and the body together as part of the treatment process, um, obviously with skilled practitioners, not just like that, right? That's been a nice shift too, because you start you start actually integrating wellness um, in a different in a different way. Awesome. That is very thorough. And yeah, I very much appreciate it. Sometimes when you ask questions in these interviews, you just never know what you're gonna get. You know, I've got literally like one sentence or like where you kind of pull the okay. questions out. <laughs> So you have yeah. given me like it's this is a blessing for me to oh, be. Oh, thank you. That. That's very funny. Yeah, thanks. So I wanted to ask you about uh EHN Canada as well. Just you mentioned a new location. Anything 
that you can provide about that or anything that you would like to promote uh, for your organization over the next three to six months? Oh, gosh. I mean, I think Edge of Health Network, obviously, I think it's amazing. I'm not going to not say that. You know, I think it's a it's an incredible Canada-wide like organization looking to help as many Canadians access uh, mental health and addiction support across the country. I think when I look at what we're doing, we're continuing to expand our inpatient locations. We're, con- we're continuing to work with employers, government agencies, et cetera, to get funded treatment to be part of the conversation. Because if we look at the investment of either tax dollars or even employer dollars and the return to work likelihood of someone who successfully goes through treatment, it's actually an incredibly good investment when we look at that. So we're really trying, we're publishing a lot on our outcomes. Like we recently um, published an article in the Journal of Mental Health and Substance Use like that talks about all of our outcomes of inpatient treatment, like decrease in depression and anxiety and these increases in recovery capital, like all these pieces that we know are so important to treatment. So really trying to make it measurable because I think we can talk all day, but if the proof's in the pudding, right? Like it's 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 how do you make sure it's measurable? So that's, I think, a big ticket of, of EHN is we, we want to focus on outcomes and we want to prove that we do what we say we do um, and that the investment is worth it because I think a lot of flack that private organizations get the cost of treatment is too much. The cost is astronomical. How do you warrant those types of treatment? And I say, yeah, you're right. Like it is expensive. And we're providing this level of care, this level of psychiatric service, psychological, all those pieces. And, and it might actually be worth the investment. And this is why. I think, you know, on the island in particular, like we've we've been working with VHA too. So we have EHN online, um, which has been working with VHA to provide some um, online services for addictions and mental health support for those individuals that either may be in remote communities or due to childcare constraints, et cetera, can't get into treatment. And we've also worked with them with our edge location specifically to have, you know, beds open here for uh, residents of Vancouver Island. Um, and on a continuous flow to uh, allow individuals that are local to also seek treatment at no cost. And so I think that's an exciting development for us here on the island. Awesome. And uh, just, are you allowed to say, and we can cut it about the Western Canada location, is it in BC? No, not, the new one's not. We just, we just did one actually in BC that we opened in September last year. So yeah, like, like eight, some eight months ago. Okay. So to close up here, we've got four questions. We ask these to each interviewee. And so I'm going to start off uh, and ask you what your favorite book is. And just, there's no parameters. It can be fiction. It could be a textbook, whatever you want. There's no textbook. (laughs) Well, you never know. You're an academic, so. Fair enough. No, I picked uh, A House in the Sky by Amanda Lindhout or Lindhout. I'm not sure how to say her last name. It's a... it's like a real, it's a, it's a true story um, based on her life. It's super good. It's just, yeah, she's a backpacker. She travels all over, but she gets, she gets put in these really precarious situations. And I don't know, the book stuck with me. I've never, I've never stopped thinking about that book. Awesome. I have not heard of it, but I will be adding it to the list. Awesome. So second one here is favorite app. And we just asked that it would not be email or part of your word processing suite because we've got Excel probably 70 times already. The weather network. <laughs> yep. I love the weather. <laughs> it's not like such a dork, but you just, you can track it hourly. It's great. No, I feel you. Uh, even just for convenience of like what to wear or, yeah. <laughs> you know, you're going out for a run. How long do I have? Exactly. 
Uh, best personal advice that you've received? Oh God, I've got a few. Um, so I just heard this line a couple of weeks ago, but it speaks to like what, how I live my professional personal life. Like, I think you've got to be kind or nobody's going to, going to be, nobody's going to work with you if you, if you don't bring kindness to the table in my personal opinion. But uh, someone said to me who I recently hired on board, she said that the the largest, the best piece of advice she got when it came to managing was how can I be soft on people, but hard on process? And she said that to me. And so it's not my quote. It came from, from a woman that I just recently, we recently hired. And, and she said that I was like, oh, that's so true. Because how can I, can, for me, it's like, how do I connect and love and care for my employees while ensuring that we produce really high quality, important, you know, pieces of the operational puzzle like because you can't you know you can't have the softness without without the expectation right so yeah that was something that stuck with me when she said it yeah i really like that uh actually uh very last question for you favorite restaurant on vancouver island i really like il terrazzo in victoria but it's all about the tapenade if i could just if i could just bottle the tapenade bring it home then i'd do that Thanks for stopping by From the Trenches, the Business Examiner podcast. Sponsored by Coastal Community Credit Union. Who's helping you take care of your financial health? Visit cccu.ca for more information.